Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is manager and publicist Ramon Hervey. First of all, you've probably all heard about the Twitter fiasco that's happening right now with Elon Musk taking over and changing a whole lot and actually having Twitter on the brink of either going bankrupt or maybe just going away. This shows us one thing again over and over that we see that most artists kind of overlook, and that's you can't rely on a social network as your main online presence. Now, of course, Twitter isn't a huge online presence for most musicians, most artists, most songwriters, most bands. doesn't matter because this applies to just about every single one of them. The only thing that you can control is your website and your mailing list. You can't control any social network. You don't know when they're going to do an update. You don't know when they're going to change things in such a way that you might lose all your followers, and we've seen that happen on many social networks in the past. So, for instance, right now, everybody is focused on TikTok and understood because it's the hottest property right now, but the fact of the matter is that might go away with the increased government scrutiny that is going on because it's a Chinese-owned company, and what's happening is collecting all sorts of data on U.S. citizens, and of course, that could be dangerous. So if your entire online world is centered around TikTok or Facebook or Instagram or you name it, the problem is what happens when that changes? And we're seeing this play out right now with Twitter. Remember, you cannot control any social network. Oh, maybe you can control a little bit about how people see your profile or a little bit about how they see your posts. But don't forget, you can't control much more than that. The only thing that you really have control of is your website and mailing list. So remember, use social networks, but remember that the goal is to get your audience off them and not your mailing list. That's where the real power is. Don't get left out in the cold when a social network changes. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineers Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, whenever we go to concerts, a big gripe I think that everybody has is that the subwoofers are frequently way too loud. And what it does is it kind of obscures what we really should be hearing, which is the rest of the frequency bands. So in other words, there's so much subwoofer and so much drummer and kick drum that we can't hear the vocalist. That being said, one of the reasons why sound people do this is because it does excite the crowd. Now we actually have some evidence, but the evidence is not quite what everyone expected. McMaster University in Ontario, Canada, just did a study to find out exactly where those frequencies are that excite people 
And what they discovered, it was very low frequencies that went from 8 to 37 hertz. And this is below our threshold of detectable hearing, but it's something that we can feel. So what they did is they took two groups of people and they fitted them with motion capture gear. And then there was a 55 minute long concert. What they did is they turned the VLF, the very low frequencies, turn them off and on every two minutes and 30 seconds. So it was two minutes and 30 seconds on, and two minutes and 30 seconds off. What they discovered was there was more movement, more dancing, more head bopping, more apparent enjoyment whenever the VLF was there. So we really love these low frequencies, but it's lower than we might think, and it's lower than what most subwoofers can actually put out. The interesting thing here is they used Meyer VLFCs, which is a cabinet with dual 18s and 5,600 watts of power. And this is made mostly for vibration testing. <laughs> for instance, NASA uses it for finding out what the potential vibration is going to be like in spacecraft liftoffs. So this isn't something that you find in concerts up until now. Now we're starting to see these actually coming out into the wild. So remember that this is something that you can't hear, only feel but expect it to be the next piece added to concert sound systems. My guest this week is Ramon Hervey, who's worked as a highly regarded entertainment manager, brand consultant, and public relations specialist with a diverse and impressive roster of entertainers that covers a wide spectrum of music genres, ranging from pop rock, rhythm and blues, hip-hop, jazz, and gospel. The list includes Richard Pryor, Bette Midler, Little Richard, Lenny Kravitz, Paul McCartney, Herb Alpert, Vanessa Williams, Peter Frampton, Andre Crouch, Nick Nolte, and James Kahn, and many more. He's also served as an executive producer for several films, television, and live events, including the Peabody Award-winning documentary Chisholm 72, Unbought and Unbossed, the anniversary album NBA at 50, and was the music supervisor for the NAACP award-winning film Free Angela and All Political Prisoners. Ramon recently wrote his experiences in a book entitled The Fame Game, an insider playbook for earning your 15 minutes. During the interview, we spoke about promoting the great Motown acts, managing Little Richard, working with Muhammad Ali, what it takes to be successful in the entertainment business, dealing with celebrity egos, and much more. I spoke with Ramon from his office in New York via Zoom. Before... You became a talent manager, you were a publicist, but I'd like to hear your backstory before then. How did you get to the point of being a publicist? Uh, I kind of became, I became a publicist quite by accident. I sort of fell into it. I was a flight attendant for Pan Am Airlines uh, after I graduated from college. And um, I was uh, domiciled in uh, England at Heathrow Airport. I was one of uh, five, I, I did my training in Miami, Florida. And then uh, we had three bases to choose from, uh, Washington, DC, Boston, or England. And I was dying to get out of the country. <laughs> and so I was fortunate in, in being um, the, one of the, the only guys and, and four women that were based in London. And I was also at that time, uh, Pan Am, uh, None of the American airlines, uh, international airlines, had uh, any male stewards or flight attendants. 
So, uh, and they also, very few blacks were employed by Pan Am or any of the major airlines. So I killed two birds with one stone. <laughs> so I was one of the first black males to be hired by Pan Am. And uh, I moved over there and uh, started work. And then I got laid off. And during that time, I met a singer and she, she recommended I talk to her agent, um, a guy by the name of Peter Walsh. He ran a booking agency in Notting Hill Gate, part of London, um, called Starlight Artists. And he had a, it's a pretty uh, robust roster. He had the, the Bay City Rollers. He had Marmalade. He had Clem Curtis in the Foundations, Matt and Katie Kassoon, um, a group called Blue. And Bay City Rollers were actually the, the one of the top teen groups at that, at that time. This is in the mid-70s. Uh, they were, you know, a lot of people were saying they were a- approaching like Beatles, you know, start of fandom at least, you know, but they only really had one big record. But I ended up getting a job at that agency, basically as in uh, doing in-house publicity for his um, his roster. And then um, while I was there, um, I also uh, started to work with, uh, uh, I got an offer to work as a, editor of a, of a couple of music magazines, because um, what a lot of people don't realize is the Bay City Rollers, their album was produced by two guys, Bill Martin and Phil Coulter. And they actually produced with session singers the whole album, and they did two albums. And then after Bay, the Bay City Rollers got successful, they fired these guys. And they had another album in the can, so they went and got five new people to record, to basically front the second Bay City Rollers album. And their name was Kenny, and they became very popular. And I started doing publicity for them. And one of the editors uh, of this uh, magazine called Poster asked me, would I come and run his magazine? And so I thought, well, great, that, that sounds like a fun thing to do. And so I took that job and I started being, I was an editor for that magazine. And it was a very small staff, it was just like me, um, we had an art director, him, he didn't really do anything, but he had the money. And then another guy that had another magazine, a fishing magazine. And as you know, I don't want to be the only writer in the magazine. So do you have a problem? I'd like to create a fake staff, you know, and I'll just use this, but I'll write this, you know, I'll try to write a little bit different. So it looks like we're a bigger magazine. So oh, we like that idea. So I ran that. And then we started another magazine called Superstar. And then I was running, you know, I thought I was going to get hired back. Uh, at Pan Am, but I didn't. So I stayed there and then I had to make a decision whether I should stay and really become like a British citizen. I was almost there for four years or or come back to the States. And that's when I decided to come back. And uh, I got a job at uh, Motown was my first entry uh, position in the music industry in the States. And I worked under a guy named Bob Jones. And this was in the, this was right when uh, Motown moved from Detroit to Hollywood, and they took up office space at uh, the old CNN building on CNN. In fact, one of my first jobs when I got hired was unpacking boxes <laughs> from the press department, which I wasn't sure about. Uh, but I worked, you know, as a junior publicist there and a writer there, um, you know, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, uh, Vanna Ross, Jackson 5, The Supremes, um, The Commodores, uh, uh, David Ruffin, 
Eddie Kendricks, uh, Dennis Edwards, uh, Junior Walker and the All-Stars, Thelma Houston. I mean, there's just a, a, you know, Grover Washington Jr. I got to work with a lot. Of, I wasn't, you know, the way Gordy had it, he had like a, a strata within the business so that my main responsibility was working with Black Press. And then there was a guy named Mike Roshkin who was vice chairman. And he really handled the bigger stars um, like Stevie and Marvin and Diana. And uh, I wasn't allowed. I found out after trying to pitch the Commodores to um, Newsweek that I wasn't even allowed to call Newsweek. I almost got fired over doing that because I just thought like, you know, the black press was great and I wanted to support the black press. But I thought, what could I do to elevate my position within the company? And I decided you know, if I could get a, a piece in a bigger magazine, you know, a magazine outside of the, the black sphere. Um, but I wasn't, no one ever told me I wasn't allowed to do that. So I pitched the Commodores um, and uh, the guy from uh, Newsweek, he was shocked that I was calling him because I wasn't, <laughs> he says, who are you? I never heard of you. And I said, well, I am a new guy here, blah, blah, blah. He goes, well, I'll, I'll get back to you. And he immediately called Mike Roskin and said, who's this young kid calling me, blah, blah, blah. But uh, yeah, so that's how I got my start in, in, in publicity and on the label side. And then after that, um, I went to Rogers and Cowan Public Relations and got an entry level uh, position while working as a publicist. In fact, my first account, um, I was hired as a freelance writer because I got laid off from Motown and I got hired to work on a project for Paul McCartney. And he owned the publishing to the entire Buddy Holly catalog. And he was doing a special week, a tribute week to raise uh, awareness about his songs in, in the UK. And um, my task was to put together, write a uh, press kit, put together a press kit that Paul could use. And uh, so I, I did it. And uh, Paul, he didn't call me and tell me he loved it, but he told the boss who ended up being my boss that he really liked it and that they were going to use it as is. And uh, that ultimately led to, that was the caveat that got at Rogers and Cowan. And I became a publicist there and got a chance to work with a lot of, you know, really great, talented, A-list uh, artists there. And was that just music or was that across different... Uh... Well, I started off in music. Um, I worked with, besides McCartney, I worked with Peter Frampton. I worked with the Bee Gees, George Benson, Natalie Cole. Ashford and Simpson, Daryl Hall and John Oates, Herb Alpert, just a ton of music people. And then our division, we expanded into talent and not music. And then I started working on uh, some other projects. I worked with Nick Nolte and Richard Dreyfus and uh, Bette Midler, who was you know, doing some acting and some uh, Richard Pryor. Um, so I got a really, it was a really great uh, opportunity because Rogers and Cowan was the first major independent uh, uh, publicity firm in Hollywood. Um, you know, and the studios uh, pretty much employed all the actors. And so they were managers, agents, and publicists. And the studio execs, they determined who was going to be a star and who wasn't going to be a star. And then Rogers and Cowan became the first were Robert Wagner and uh, Paul Newman, Natalie Wood, people of that 
level, we're able to actually pay individual, you know, pay publicists to do their work. And it also jettisoned um, the opportunity for managing agents to represent major acts, uh, art you know, actors as well. So that company had a 50 year history, you know, um, when I started working there. And, and they, they uh, I got great tutelage and, and was able to, you know, it opened a lot of doors for me working there. So how different was it promoting a music star, a music celebrity against an entertainment celebrity, film, television? Um, I think there's always been an inequity um, because I think music as much as, I mean, music is a universal language and, you know, nowadays it's consumed more than it has before. I mean, you know, artists are getting billions of views, uh, you know, uh, YouTube and, uh, but, it, you know, when you look at television and the outlets, music was kind of the bastard art form, you know, you got less you know, there were tons of music magazines that serviced the music industry, but mainstream magazines, it was tough to get uh, music artists in those magazines, um, especially to get covers or to get equitable space that would be uh, equal to big, you know, film and television stars. Um, and even, you know, if you got Tonight Show or whatever, you got two minutes and maybe a handshake and that was it, you know? So it, it was always uh, tough to, because, you know, they looked at it as sort of like a relief. It was almost like a commercial. We need something to break up the talk. So let's book a music artist, you know, but it was never like, we want that artist um, to, we'll give that artist, you know, the bigger artists, even back to the days of like Dick Cavett and, you know, when he had like Jimi Hendrix on and people like that, they gave, you know, the bigger stars, um, and Ed Sullivan, too, I think, was very instrumental in adding value to music on national television. So there were pockets of where it was more accessible than others. But for the most part, I, I did find that it was uh, more difficult to get space, you know, uh, publicity for music artists than it was for other other acts like a, a Bette Midler, who wasn't just music or somebody like Nick Nolte, who had become a big film star, you know, everybody wanted to talk to them. How did you make the jump to management? I made the jump to management because it's funny, I ended up writing this book now, but I, I at one time I really wanted to write a book about my my exploits as a publicist because it was always like, I, I was going to, I even had a title and it was going to be called uh, Last Gone and First to Go. Because I found as a publicist that people would come to you and you'd almost serve as a mock. Um, they had done all the imaging, the music. They probably they came to you too late for you to be effective. They had no sense of the strategic timing of when media wants to be able to cover, what the deadlines were for. So I and I thought that a lot of the uh, managers really didn't understand sell through. Uh, in terms of marketing records, you know, and they, they, they were Achilles heels in some respect because they really, or the music wasn't right, like, or the music didn't match the image. And it was just like, geez, you guys, this, this whole project sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be so hard to sell it because so many things that are wrong. And so I just decided that, you know, I'd like to be in a position where I can be more of an orchestrator and have more creative freedom 
and what the what the final product would be. And a lot of times, as a publicist, I didn't have that. You know, sometimes artists would rely on my input. They say, "I want you to listen to these tracks. Let me know what you think." You know, but a lot of times it didn't happen. That was something that was off. You know, that I wouldn't get the music until um, the manager finally decided it was okay for you for you as a publicist to listen. So I really made that transition to try to have more impact and take the risk. You know, when you're a publicist, you get paid a monthly retainer fee. When you're a manager, you're really putting yourself out there on the limb and hoping that you can uh, create, you know, revenues, generate revenues so that you can get a, a, a commission off whatever the artist makes. But I thought, you know, if I'm going to take a risk, I want to take a risk in myself and that I can, I can build a trust and, and collaborate with the artist to really make sure that we we develop the right um, product. So you need an artist that believes in you before you can become a manager. So who is the artist? My first artist that it kind of happened almost within like within a six month, within a year. Um, but the first one, I guess, was Andre Crouch. Andre Crouch, I had done his public relations um, for maybe a year or so. And he goes, Ramon, I really like you. I'm not really happy with my manager. And my first thing whenever someone tells me that is why, why aren't you, why are, are you unhappy with your manager? Because, you know, a lot of times it could be like a, like an argument. And I would say like, well, that's an argument. You guys need to talk it out. You know, you don't need another manager. You need to communicate, let them know where you're, you know, and there's many times I turned down opportunities because people had risk with the managers and they just wanted to jump ship. And I just said, I don't want to, you know, if you're going to do that with them, you're going to do it with me in a matter of time. And so, but Andre gave me my first break and, and, and the, my first three artists that I managed, which was, Andre Crouch, Little Richard, Little Richard, I got uh, an opportunity to to represent him as a publicist because he had a book called uh, Little Richard, The Quasar of Rock and Roll. And it was was published by Crown Publishers. And I had done a very successful book publishing tour for artists, I mean, author tour for Bette Midler. Um, for a book called Saga Baby Divine. And, and they called me and asked me would I be willing to read the galley uh, for Little Richard's book. And I fell in love with the book. And I said, yeah, I, I would love this. This is really great. Um, I'm a huge fan. And so I got an opportunity. And then because of the success of the book and the attention that it got, he asked me to manage him. And then I also ended up managing my ex-wife, who I got involved with her as a publicist as well. And that was all within probably around a year that I launched my management company based on those three artists initially. I noticed that one of your your management clients was Muhammad Ali. No, I never managed Muhammad Ali. What I did with Muhammad Ali was I got an opportunity to, to work with him initially because I was good friends with his lifetime uh, personal photographer, a guy by the name of Howard Bingham who shot him, he's shot many, many amazing pictures of Muhammad Ali over the course of his year. They were really good friends. And Howard was running for an assemblyman position in Los Angeles. And he called me up and he said, hey, Ramon, I'm running for this. And I, Ali wants to, he said he would do something for me. And I want to try to take advantage of it, but I don't know what to do. 
and he said he would help me. And uh, so we, we came up with the idea of doing an exhibition and Ali, which I ended up producing an exhibition fight where he would, he would uh, do this. Um, he would go a few rounds with, uh, he did it with uh, Marvin Gaye, Sammy Davis Jr., <laughs> Richard Pryor, and Burt Young, who had starred in the Rocky, in the, the first Rocky movie. And so we put together this, uh, this exhibition uh, event where Ali fought these three, these four people. And it was at the Olympic Auditorium, you know, the famous boxing auditorium in Los Angeles. So that was my first job really working because I had to, you know, get approved by Ali. Ali had to approve all the celebrities. And he was, he was just, he was amazing to work with. And uh, that was the beginning of a friendship with him. And, you know, I represented a, a boxer, Matthew Saad Muhammad, and I also represented uh, Salon, uh, uh, was Sassoon Jeans, and they became big sponsors in the boxing industry. And uh, Ali would come to anything that I had to come to whenever we did a party for, for them. And uh, we just became friends. And then he also, I worked for him on a children's, an international children's book festival or something that he had agreed to support um some british guy i can't remember the name of the guy so i got a chance to you know talk talk to him and just uh but i he never officially paid me because i did that other thing for howard and i don't even remember i think i did make some money off it but but not a lot i just when i when he told me that i had an opportunity to do this I said, hey, I'll do this, and it doesn't matter how much money you have, we'll, we'll, we'll make it work. Yeah. The reason why I ask is my ears always perk up when I hear about Ali, because he used to train in Deer Lake, Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah, of course. I remember seeing the shot, the movie, the Dutch movies of him many times yeah. out there. It was like 15 miles away from where I grew up. Oh, okay. And all of us would wonder we don't go to Deer Lake. I mean, what's the attraction? Because no one could figure it out why he was attracted to Deer Lake. And I'm still trying to find out to this day. So whenever I hear of someone that's worked with him, it's like, oh, maybe you know. <laughs> right. No, I don't know. I just think that he had, uh, he liked to be away from the hub. Uh, you know, he liked, to, you know, my understanding was that he picked that place because it, nobody could get to him. <laughs> that's for and sure. And he could really you know, focus on his training, you know, that he didn't want to be a lot of people train in Vegas or even in LA, you know, uh, most of the, you know, Matthew Saad Muhammad, he, he trained uh, up in San Diego um, and stayed at, you know, you know, not in the, the best hotel, you know, just to really have their team in an atmosphere where they could really be only inclusive and focus on the training. I just think that's something that I think a lot of boxers, of the best ones have followed that same path of yeah. wanting, you know, isolation and uh, away from the hobnob of, you know, being able to go out at night and disrupt your training process, etc. Let's talk about your book, Ramon. So how did that come about? Well, um, over the years, you know, a lot of people say, wow, you have such great stories. And, you know, if I told them, you know, different accounts of different things that I you know, in, encountered working with a, a lot of famous people. So you should do a book. And I go, yeah, 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 I don't know. <laughs> and I always kind of like, I don't know. I don't really know. And I didn't want to do a memoir. And then a girl, a friend that I, you know, I had 
played around with the idea, but I was trying to come up with a concept, a theme that would I thought would resonate and, and something that I could speak to that wasn't, I didn't want to do a memoir because I felt like uh, even though I'm getting up in age, I felt like I still have a lot of time left and I, didn't, I thought a, a memoir would be premature. So I started thinking about, you know, the, the idea of in game because the fame, the idea of 15 minutes of fame was something that I remember hearing in the late sixties when it first came out. You know, when I started in the business, I always remembered that Andy Warhol, and actually Andy Warhol, you know, if you read the book, you'll find out, you know, he he's credited with it, but he only came up with half the statement. But it was it was a statement that was made during a photo shoot in Sweden where he was being shot by this well-known Swedish photographer. And they were, it was, uh, there was a, you know, full-length windows and there was a whole group gathering, you know, googling at him. And uh, they were teasing each other, talking about, yeah, everybody wants to be famous. And then he said, yeah, for 15, for 15 minutes. But when I started working in the entertainment business, I used to assess it. I used it as a mantra. I used to analyze potential clients to see, like, that I think they could get 15 minutes. I used it as sort of a way, or is this someone that's going to be like a one-beat, one-night track? Or is there something magical about them where they could get 15 minutes? Because I always looked at 15 minutes as if you can sustain it over a period of time and, and leverage it and strategize and, and extend your the life. That 15 minutes is really important because our business is really based on reaching the top tier. And when you reach that top tier, meaning those people who I think get those 15 minutes, and you have more leverage and clout than anybody that's got 12, 10, 7, 5, or whatever, because our business is all based on top 10. You know, they want the top 10 stars to perform. You know, if, you're, if a Tonight Show booker, who's the, who's the hottest people out there? We want them on our show. Uh, who's the hottest movie director? Who's the hottest, you know, and it's all based on that, the most, trying to get the most famous people. And so I looked at that, you know, and I always thought that fame is not, it's, it's an accolade and it's a reward. It's a byproduct of success. So to me, we I always focus on what does it take to be successful in our business? And if you're successful, then you have a shot at fame. And that's one sort of a, an ongoing uh, message of the book is that fame, you know, is again, it's not a destination and you shouldn't obsess with fame. Um, you should obsess about being your very doing, being the best that you can be, because that's what I learned from all my clients. We never sat around. I, there's not one client I can tell you that we sat around and talked about becoming famous. We always talked about the art form being true to the art, being true to your legitimacy, your integrity as an artist. And if we do all these things right and we're lucky, you know, the publicly, the public ultimately is the arbitrator of fame anyway. So all we can do is, help, you know, try to position in my role as either publicist or manager is to, you know, accentuate the artist's strengths, try to maximize it, expose it, and hope that we, you know, we, we made some great decisions and the public responds to it favorably the entertainment business has changed so much since the time you started to the way it is now so how did your approach change uh, i think you know you it's your responsibility to adapt and to be a fle flexible to whatever the current paradigm is you know and there's been many shifts in the business just like the way uh 
people consume music. I mean, from vinyl to cassettes to dats to CDs to downloading, which you know that was a huge step in the in the in the music industry when uh, Apple came out and decided that they would actually pay to have music downloaded, and and artists could make money off that, even though it was you know. 99 cents for the superstars, I think it was $1.29 they could charge. Um, but it really shifted. And I, I just think trying to stay abreast what the trends are and then redirecting your strategies to be able to try to implement the what, how to use that. Even though, you know, I, I, I kind of laugh at how uh, everyone is so enthralled with social media because it's, it's like a in terms of a platform you know mass consumption of social media really didn't occur until 12 years ago and yet we're really um, everybody it's like if you're not on social media and half the world is you can't really exist in our society anymore you know without social media whereas you know uh, television was invented in 1931 became household available to the masses in the 50s uh, but newspapers and radio have been around since the 1800s, and uh, you know they still exist. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens with social media. But you know, I've just always tried to be a sponge uh, of the business and uh, and the industry, and just to try to uh, make sure that I stay abreast of uh, everything that's going on that can affect um, my ability to, to be effective in my roles. You know. Yeah. All right, last question, Ramon. What is the best piece of advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or something that you learned along the way? I, I think that uh, probably the piece that resonated with me with the most uh, was this guy that owned that booking agency, a Starlight Artist. And he uh, one time he told me, he goes, Ramon, I really, I really like you, but you're too nice. And nice guys finish last. And I went, wow, that's how you feel, huh? I go, well, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be, uh, I'm gonna take that with a grain of salt, but I'm gonna stick to the way my approach. And uh, I've, I've always believed that, you know, just because you're famous, one of my tenets of fame in the book is, just because you're famous doesn't entitle you to be an asshole. And being a famous asshole is the worst kind to be. So I don't believe that. I think there's a lot of uh, our businesses, you know, as you know, you've been around for a long time. It's it's there's so many egos in our business, and you at some point you you have to be able to uh, navigate and work through that process and put yourself and uh, and to have a view that everyone's equal. That we're whether you're famous or you're not famous, you're still just a human being. And just because you do have a talent um, and music is, is definitely a talent, it doesn't entitle you to mistreat people or to dis show disrespect um, just because you, you have a certain level of success that they may not have. And I do believe that people can finish first. So I think that was something that always stuck with me. And I was really young when that happened. You know, I, I, was, I just started in the business. That was my first real job in the business, but it always stuck with me. And I've always tried to just be fair and equitable in the way that I do business with people. How did you deal with 
artists, with celebrities that have big egos, and they almost have to in order to succeed. But how did you deal with that? I think people in my role are expected to be a calming force, a voice of reason. And at the same time, I think uh, in order for people like me to do what we do, I think that for me, at least, I have to be authentic to myself. It's the same way that I say that, you know, if you do become famous, don't let it define you because you're not going to be famous forever. So what do you do when you're no longer famous? And I think for me, the authenticity uh, and having uh, being able to exercise honesty with my clients, that to earn that respect helped me to, to form a relationship where they trusted and had confidence in my skills. And it was important for me, even if they didn't like it, and I never believed that it was our career, you know, to me, whenever, you know, I was on both jobs, whether you're a publicist or a manager, you're in the service industry, you're getting paid to perform a service. But at the same time, uh, I believe that I want to be respected for my talents and my skill set. And I want people to know that uh, my clients, meaning the artists, to know that I, you know, if I believe in something, I'm going to tell you, you don't have to do it because it's your career. But I stand on my own because when it comes back and if that doesn't work, I don't want you to say that I didn't say anything. You know, I'm saying that to myself, but um, I used to tell them, I said, well, you know, I want to tell you this. You may not like it, but I, I want to be authentic with you. I think you're making a mistake and I'll tell you why. And I'll tell you what I think we should do, but it's your decision. And I think it, you know, for me, I think I gained more respect for speaking my mind and being honest than I would have been of just being a yes man and doing whatever they say. I think most artists are looking for, they have biggies and they don't like to be told they're wrong, but I do think that they're looking for people who will be uh, transparent with them and, and be authentic and, you know, give them sound advice that's, that's not measured because you're afraid you're going to lose your job or that they're not capable of listening to something that makes logical sense. Ramon's book, The Fame Game, an insider's playbook for earning your 15 minutes, can be found wherever books are sold. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosensky.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com, select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Thank you.